No one can ever accuse God of ghosting. Sociologists identify ghosting, largely in the digital realm these days, as cutting off all communication with no explanation. So somebody develops some sort of online or through texting a friendship or maybe is pursuing an employer or seeking advice or even developing a romantic interest and with no explanation, that person stops all communication. You send another message and then you send another one. Did you get my last text? Have I offended you in some way? Have you relocated to the morgue? Are you there? Nothing. Ghosted. Ghosting has become such a source of angst in our digital world that social scientists have identified degrees of ghosting determined by the level of emotional pain the ghosted person suffers. I had no idea. (laughs) It's amazing. Now, God does cut off communication. You might might have even thought of last week and said, wait a minute. Remember Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 13? I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. But such cessation of communication by God comes only after many warnings against spiritual rebellion. But that noted, God loves to speak. He is zealously communicative to mankind. In perfect love, God pours out His soul in word and in the works that His word creates in this world. Far from a ghoster, God speaks and the universe reverberates with the message. We may ghost Him, But he does not ghost us. He speaks. And in our series on God's Word, we transition to the New Testament today. And here, coming to John chapter 1, we must address this text in this context of God's Word. The revelation of God's Word rises here to a glorious fullness. Anticipated in the Old Testament, but never really tapped as we find it here. John 1 reveals that God the Word created the world, that He took on flesh as the ultimate revelation of God to the world. These glorious truths are announced in words that are so simple in the Greek language, they are the delight of an elementary Greek student. And yet, These simple words carry such theological depth as to confound the most learned Bible scholars. You get in the midst of this, you know you cannot conquer it, and you know you're on holy ground. John 1 is so fundamental to our faith. We find, first of all, the Word as Creator shines living light on all in the first five verses. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Saying it again, He was in the beginning with God. A qualifying verse there in verse 2. These words from the Apostle John are a gift 
of exquisite value to us as Christ followers and to our theological understanding of the world. John employs here the popular Greek word logos, translated the word, as a springboard for his gospel. But as lofty a word as logos was for Greeks, John's view of the logos was far more glorious and transcendent than anything Greek philosophy had ever considered. The Greek philosophers were awfully proud of this word logos. They had lifted it to great heights. It was the fundamental rational spirit or principle of life. Or some thought of it as the transcendent ideal form on the pattern of which all things exist. But what do you hear when you hear in the beginning? If I hadn't directed us to John 1 and just said, in the beginning fill out the next phrase, you very likely say, God created the heavens and the earth. And that tips us off to the fact that in the beginning is being connected here not to Greek philosophy, but to the Old Testament Scriptures. And there is a direct connection here in John 1 to Genesis 1. So John's use of logos is rooted in the Hebrew Bible, not in Greek philosophy. He speaks of the word that spoke the world into existence. And sees it here as personified. Reveals it here as personified. But notice here that John is not talking about the creative act at the beginning of time. Not here in verses 1 and 2. That will come in verse 3. But rather in verses 1 and 2 he says that in the beginning the Word already was. In the beginning was the Word. So the Word pre-existed creation in an eternal, continuing timeless state of existence. In fact, the, the simplistic Greek with such profound meaning helps us here with the imperfect tense, which we don't really have, but it's the imperfect tense of was. He was in the state going on in existence. The early church father Arius insisted this. He said there was a time when Christ was not. Language can hardly put any more clearly, there was no such time. Jesus was. John insists that before time began, the word was. What John says next, here in verses 1 and 2, is either deep truth or it's utter lunacy. He makes two assertions. He says, first of all, the word was with God. There's differentiation there of a sort that allows fellowship. In fact, the word with sometimes could be translated face to face. It comes from that, uh, that Greek root. That there was a face to face intimate relationship. The word was with God. But then he says the word was God. Speaking of perfect, the perfect oneness of God. God cannot be divided but is one true and living God. This word was with God and was God. Now has John lost his way? I mean, read the rest of the book. He's clearly not a lunatic. He's clearly quite gifted and he hasn't tripped in the first verses of the Bible, or of of his book here in the Bible. No, he's saying both. That he was with God and was God. Today, the error of Arius is upheld by the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses who assert the trans- this translation. 
they say it should be read, and the word was a God, small g. And the word was a God. And their idea, along with Arius, is that there was a time when the word, Christ, the Lord, was not. A time when he was created. In the mysterious past somewhere, God the Father created a lesser, inferior God the Son. This reading of the Greek text, it's important for us to know, not that you can work out the Greek or that we're going to train us to work out the Greek or something along those lines, but to say to you by way of information that this concept has been thoroughly disproven by Greek scholars. I don't know that you can find a capable, learned Greek scholar that would say that's how you should translate this phrase. The word was a God, small g. None would say that. It is an interpretation that is imposed upon the Greek text by an agenda to disprove Christ's oneness with the Father and His preexistent eternality. So if Jehovah's Witnesses appear at your front door and they want to talk to you about John 1 and they want to say and read from their text that the word was a God, you may not be able to argue the Greek nuances, but one thing you can know is they have no idea what they're talking about. They've been trained that this is how this text is read. They have no clue and you stand on solid ground when you say that's impossible. It's impossible to read the Greek that way. If we would read the Greek that way, and if the Greek read such that it said that Jesus was God according to their rules, the whole sentence would fall apart and just be destroyed. And what it indicates is that John knows exactly what he's up to here and says it with such precision that it cannot be taken another way other than simply to misread it. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, like Arius, believe the Word was created at some point in time as a secondary, inferior God. But on that point of creation, we see that the Word was most certainly not created. Verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We move here from the infinite in verses 1 and 2 to the finite realm. Now notice that phrase, were made. That translation is is not as helpful as it should be. It's how we can most easily understand the verse. But it should be translated, came into being. All things came into being through Him as the agent. That is, Christ was. Whereas the things Christ created came into being. He was not created but they were, is the point. So if the Son of God, the Word, was created in eternity past as a lesser God, as the Jehovah's Witnesses claim, why say, and without Him was not anything made that was made? Why say that if He was made? More literally, the Greek text reads, without Him came into being not one thing that came into being. And I don't want to stand with the Jehovah's Witnesses and say, oh, except for him. It's said the way it's said. Nothing came into being but that he brought it into being. So put all created things in a box. He's the creator 
who was there. In verse 4 and 5, John begins to unpack the wonder of the personified word. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word, verse 4, the second person of the Godhead, is the source of all life. Physically, as Creator, He is also the source of spiritual life, which John will develop in the rest of the book. The living Word is the light of people. In other words, He is the agent who enlightens people to see God's presence in this world. God is. Through creation, Christ permits us to see that God is. He brings us into being to perceive the glories of the Lord. Verse 5 here, we have a clear parallel to Genesis 1 in the physical creation of light on day 1. There is a theme that is announced there even physically in creation that God called the light into being and it chased away the darkness. The physical creation of light, setting up that theme, that battle line between the moral darkness and God's saving light. This is crucial, Christian. What he says here in verse 5, the darkness has not overcome it. It's not a dualism of darkness and light, of good and evil, of the force that can be used either way. But the light has overcome the darkness. It has never overcome the light. Now, you may have a translation that reads that they did not understand it. And the reason is because the word can be used both ways. It can be used of not grasping it with the mind, or it can be not grasping it with the hand that is overcoming it. But both are certainly the case. But I think here where John uses the phrase overcome, everywhere else that he uses it, he translates it overcome. Or he's he's conveying that idea. So I think the best way to to determine the meaning here is to see it as we have it here in the ESV. The darkness is not overcome it. This light of life that has come into the world, Christ creating that we might see the glory of God, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Nothing can destroy this light, this truth that has come. Indeed, ultimately, this gospel message that John develops through the book. So the darkness, the spiritual blindness that besets fallen mankind in rebellion against God will never stuff out this light. But God's ultimate self-disclosure then, His zealous initiative to communicate His saving power and Godhead through the living light of the Word is communicated historically by the proclamation of good news to the world. This Word announces who God is, but there are also then individuals who speak this Word and pass it on and proclaim that good news. And we see that now introduced here in verse 6. John is the witness to the light, eliciting a response from all. Verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, as you read this, 
Again, I'm, I'm telling you, I mean, John 1 in the Greek is a, is a student's delight. It is as simplistic as Greek language comes, and yet there is so much going on here. Forgive me for continuing to refer to it, but I think it would be helpful to us. When you read that word was, there was a man sent from God, it just directly connects to verses 1 and 2, right? There was the word, there was with God and was God. The problem is, is those are not the same Greek word. And so there's a subtlety that we miss in the English. I think we can bring out this way. It looks like rocket science. It's not. Just work with me through this. But you see in verses 1 and 2 the word was, or the Greek word ain. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. But when we get to verse 3... We have the translation that he made things. That's actually, again, it works that way, but it actually is the word came into being. I've mentioned that already as we looked at verse 3, but it came into being is used three times there in verse 3. And you can see ginomai and ain are not the same word, even though they're all translated was or became here. But when we get to verse 6, there was a man sent from God, is Ginnemai. I mean, it's just beautiful. Jesus was. He always existed, but John came into being. And all things came into being through him. Again, it just announces to us that John is striving to make clear that Christ was not created but that he is preexistent and eternal. But to the point at hand, at the right time in redemption history, God sent John the Baptist, verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. That is, through his witness that people would respond. He was sent by God to speak. He was sent to testify to the light, to shine the message of the word into the moral darkness. And to what end? that all might believe in Christ. That's the very purpose of the book, chapter 20 and verse 31, the only message by which we must be saved. This message must be proclaimed. God's witnesses going out and taking that message and making it clear, John initiated that. Christian church, Eden Baptist Church, John the Baptist is a really big deal is really significant, his ministry, because it began the message of the gospel from people to people. He announced this message. He announced that Christ was this one. And so his ministry was so significant, and that ministry continues as we also proclaim the gospel to the lost. Now, qualifier, verse 8, to make crystal clear, he was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. No mere man is the saving light for others. And no matter how diligently, effectively, earnestly we proclaim the gospel, we are never that light. We are not the one that saves. Christ alone saves. We can bear witness to the light, but He is always the source of that saving light. And that was uniquely John the Baptist's initiatory mission in the history of redemption. In verses 9 through 13, now we see the response to John's message. How do people take that message of the gospel, of the saving work, of the, the saving light of Christ? 
verses 9 through 13, notice here the response to that message. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The response, first of all, just and the witness, first of all, of God Himself here in verse 9. So as the physical, how do we, what do you make of verse 9? I mean, that, it's simple words, but that's kind of a confusing thought. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Was, we could say it this way, was shining upon the world. As the physical light of creation pierced the primordial darkness, so Christ shines the only genuine saving light into the moral darkness. There is no other message. And as that true light, he shines on everyone. Now this could mean that Jesus' light reveals those who reject him, even unknowingly, and those who receive him. And that certainly is how his light shines on us. Or secondly, it could refer more narrowly to shining indiscriminately on all who hear the gospel. And that's obviously true. His light comes into the world that way. But it doesn't seem that narrow to me. Does it to you, verse 9? The true light which gives light to everyone is coming into the world. And we'll be moving there to his incarnation, verse 14. But I I think it refers rather to Christ as creator. To what has been said there, particularly in verse 3. That Christ as creator shines light on his creative work. And that light is shined on all people. All people see in this created order that God is. They may not admit that that's what they see, but there is order, there is stunning wonder, there is beauty that announces a great and glorious Creator. There's an interconnectedness to all of life. There is the DNA molecule with an infinite, nearly infinite amount of wisdom and storage that announces God is There is a glorious Creator. And that light shines on all people in one form or another. By seeing nature, by heeding conscience, people see God's light. And the closer a civilization comes to Christ's wisdom, the more it is preserved from sin and the more it is blessed. Which is why I think we rightly say the Western world is growing darker and darker. As we reject general revelation we reject what we see in the creative order more and more consistently in our society but christ is this light there is a rejection of the moral order that is created into the fabric of our world but that is ultimately a rejection of christ so notice here that the saving light of christ comes from outside of us One of the forms of the rejection of the light that shines in general revelation is this world's insistence that the light comes from within you. That you need to tap that spark of the divine that's inside. That you need to work to self-actualize. That's where your salvation is. John is saying the light came into the world. It's invaded this place. And we must look to it outside of us, not inside of us. But how indeed do people respond to that light? Verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through Him. He's the Creator. Yet the world 
did not know him. Notice the subtlety here of how he shifts the meaning of world. He was in the world. He created the world, the universe. Yet the world, the system, the people bent against God did not receive him. He came to his own indeed, verse 11. His own, that would be the ethnic, his ethnic Jewish identity. He came to his own and even his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. They turned away. Despite the wonder, the glory, the light of Christ that shines upon this world in the creation that we see, in the conscience of our heart. Despite the fact that the darkness cannot quench the fire of the gospel, the world nonetheless rejects Christ. Even his own rejected him. They ghosted him. But thankfully, there's another response in verse 12. Gloriously so. And it brings us here today. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see their reception. Again, the salvation is outside of us. It's not light inside of us, but it's a gift that must be received. Salvation is external to us, not internal. And that reception is to believe on His name. That is to trust His person, to trust who He is, His character, and what He has done. Trusting Christ by faith is the doorway into the household of God. It is how we become a child of God. Now this spiritual birth into God's family is not connected in any way, shape, or form to our biological birth our physical human parents. And John makes that very clear in verse 13. So we become the children of God by receiving in faith His name, who Jesus is and all that He's done. Verse 13, who were born not of bloods, literally it's plural, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Not of bloods, that is, I think even literally, the bloods of mother and father combining together in the creation of a child. We're not born into God's family by human fleshly will or means. It's not your family that saves you. We were born into God's family by the will of God. It's His will, not my parents' will. And children, let me address you pointedly, specifically here today. If you're living at home with mom and dad, this is a really important point to catch. Your parents' faith in Christ as Savior can do nothing to save you. It can do nothing to save you from sin. It can do nothing to save you from the judgment against sin that we all rightly deserve. Do not look to mom and dad to think that because they're a believer in Christ, because they have been born of God, I have been. Don't think like that. The only answer for salvation, the only way to respond to the light that Christ gives is your personal trust in Jesus' death to pay the cost of your sin and His resurrection from the dead, which shows God's approval of His sacrifice for his people. That's where you have to put your personal trust. Not in mom and dad. Not in what happens in your home. Not in the fact that they bring you to church. 
This may be even hard to believe, but when you stand before God in eternity, mom and dad won't be next to you. You won't get in because they stand rightly before God. This is something that you must trust and believe. You must put your faith and your hope in Christ alone. And He welcomes you. Those of you that are the youngest among us here, Christ welcomes you. He invites you. He holds out that hope. Come to Him and put your trust in Him. Don't depend on your parents. Because salvation is not by human blood. It's not mom and dad. We are born of God. We are given new birth by God and God alone. Have you placed your trust in Christ as Savior? Even though mom and dad may have, that doesn't mean anything for you. Have you placed your trust in Christ as Savior? And it certainly says something to us as parents as well. Our children will be saved by nothing less than God's sovereign power. They will be saved by God. The last words of verse 13. We cannot save them. We cannot manipulate them into the kingdom. We can influence them graciously and rightly. We can pray for them. We can pray with them. We can read scriptures in the home. We can live faithfully. We can bring them to church. And let me go back to live faithfully. We can live a model and an example before them that shows the legitimacy of God's salvation. We cannot save them. And I think probably that every single Christian mom and dad have come somewhere in their life to that place where you just say, God, this is not mine. I can't do this. But we're right to say that and right to think that because we cannot force them into God's kingdom. We can encourage them and pray and influence, but we cannot save our kids. We cannot then, in summary, as we think of this reception of the word, either rejection of it, um, verses 10 and 11, or the reception of it, verses 12 and 13, we cannot encounter the living word and remain unchanged. We will either be rejectors or receivers of that message. And then uh, where we're going to end today, and really should take it through verse 18 and the whole prologue, but where we're going to end today is with verse 14 because it comes back to this theme of the word. The word as flesh reveals the glory of divine grace and truth to all. Verse 14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That Word who was God in eternity past, that Word who is the Son in eternal fellowship, took on human flesh. This, of course, is a glorious declaration of Christ's incarnation. This One who was, verses 1 and 2 who pre-existed eternally. This one who brought all things into being came in time to take on flesh. The world that He created, He took on flesh to inhabit. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This points to the historical manifestation of Christ on earth from His birth until His ascension. 
You've probably heard the, the Greek word here could be translated, he tabernacled among us, he tented among us. It speaks of a temporary dwelling. We're all temporary dwelling in this world, aren't we? But Christ in a unique way was the tabernacle among us. And I, I think there probably is some reflection that he is the, as one has called it, the new localization of God's presence on earth. That is, he replaces Moses' tabernacle and the temple, and he now is the location of God's presence on earth. We think of that glory cloud that came down upon the tabernacle and hovered above the Holy of Holies. That is Christ now. His presence, His glory, localized in this world. And we've seen His glory. There again, I think, is, is a reason that we... Um, We've seen His glory. I think there's a reason there why we see that with the glory cloud and perhaps also with the transfiguration of Christ. Probably an allusion to that transfiguration. Remember where Peter and James and John saw the glorious transfiguration of Christ. And it draws a connection to what Moses saw on another mountain as he saw the effulgence of the glory of God pass by him and announce His goodness. That glory that emits from Christ is full of grace. It's full of truth. This mirroring Moses on the mountain and saying to us that Jesus personifies now that glory which bespeaks the grace and the truth which flow from God's triune being. Jesus as the eternal Word is God's ultimate self-disclosure. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whose glory we witness in His life, in His death, in His resurrection and ascension, in His reign from heaven's right throne. From God's right throne, the right hand of God. This Word in flesh is our life. He is our light. He is the personification of divine grace and truth. He is the ultimate Word whose Word is life and hope. He is the announcement with John the Baptist of our witness to a lost world that's rejecting that light, but among whom are some who will receive it. Have you received it? Have you received that light? To all who received Him, who believe in His name, believe in who He is, and in all that He's done, He gave the right to become children of God. Born not of the flesh, but born of God. Lord, what joy is ours to claim that birthright. We do not deserve it. We've not earned it. We cannot even ultimately make it happen. But we thank You that You've invited us to trust You and to receive that message and You've enabled us to reach out and accept it by grace through faith in Christ alone. I pray that we would be faithful to proclaim that message in this dark world. That we would live it out as light and as salt. And I pray for those who know not Christ among us that You draw them to saving faith in Jesus. That they would see in Him the light that brings life. And Lord, for all who know you, may we now sing with joy and thanksgiving of heart as we consider before us this profound text that goes so much deeper than we can fathom. 
and what, and what we will be learning to understand through all eternity. That in the beginning the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and through Him we've been made. We've been created, and through Him we've been saved. Help us now to sing to the glory of your name through Jesus we pray.